This program is part of the Cosmic Potato Podcast Network. For more shows like this, visit our website at CosmicPotato.com. Accessing data files. Initiating program. Welcome to Cosmic Potato, the super fan talk podcast. Downloading Sean. My name is Sean Ray, and I don't know why people hate Nickelback. Easy peasy lemon squeezy. Downloading John. But like the one benefit to uh, getting fat is that I don't have to iron my clothes as much. If you're going to build a time machine into a car, why not do it with some style? We've got you covered with everything from Marvel to Star Wars. I'm glad you asked that because I wanted to take this time to explain my evil plan. Downloading Rick. Did you know that elephants are made entirely out of Rocky Road ice cream? Classic films, trivia games, and beyond. He's looking at you, kid. Accessing guest files. N C C one seven o one. No bloody A. Joni loves Shachi is the epitome. You beat me to it, you bastard. B. Uh, I wasn't listening. Sorry. Oh, good boy. <laughs> <laughs> I've never felt more like a northerner than I do right now. (laughs) Or D. If you're wondering how this is going to play out, just watch A Bug's Life. It's basically the same plot. Come to the coast, we get together, have a few laughs. Now, on with the show. Keep the change, you filthy animal. Hey everybody and welcome to Cosmic Potato, the super fan talk podcast. My name is Sean Ray and this week we're returning to our classic film series... So, here to join me in that endeavor is Troy Wood from the uh, World War G podcast. Troy, how's it going? Greetings, humans. <laughs> and uh, and joining us, uh, we've got a, a couple of friends on the line with us. Uh, first of all is our regular co-host, Mr. John Irons. How's it going, John? It's going well. <laughs> and also with us... Also for walking. <laughs> <laughs> also with us is our uh, is a classic film lover, Mr. Christopher DeFilippis. How's it going? John, Sean, Troy, fill my arms with as much heather as they can hold. Oh, God. Please. Uh, uh. <laughs> oh, man. I'm guessing that's the one I didn't see because that just happened to me. Yeah. Unfortunately for you. Oh, well, yeah, we will discuss that. <laughs> so. Yeah. So if you uh, if you haven't listened to any of these shows, uh, any of this series, what we're doing is uh, Troy and I started a couple months ago. We're taking the IMDb list of the hundred greatest films of all time, and we're watching every movie on that list and reviewing them. And uh, from time to time, we're taking a uh, we're talking about a few films that might not be on the list. Like last month, we did a sci-fi special and stuff like that. But yeah. This month, we're getting back to the list, and we're going to cover a few more. We've got number 94, which is Wuthering Heights from 1939, number 93, which is the Maltese Falcon from 1941, and number 92, which is Double Indemnity from 1944. So, But before we start talking about those three films, I had one other thing that I wanted to talk about. It's a little bit of a film review. So... Uh, as you guys know, I've got Movie Pass, so I've I see just about everything that comes out, and uh, and what Movie Pass has kind of afforded me is that I get the opportunity to watch movies in the theater that normally I would have waited for like video on demand or something like that. But last week 
I went or last Friday I went to see uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor. Have you guys seen this, Troy? I know you've seen it, uh, Chris. I John, have, have you, yes. Have you heard about it or, or, or have you seen it, Chris, John? I have heard about it. I have not seen it, but I understand it's getting nothing but rave reviews. Yeah, it's a it's a, a documentary about Mister Rogers, and this movie was fantastic. I mean, I yes. I was not expecting much. I mean, I grew up watching Mister Rogers. I wanted to see it based on that nostalgic feeling, you know. But I was not expecting the heartwarming and and good feeling that this uh, that this movie gave me. Um, I think it's it's very telling that the world is looking for something positive to focus on uh, because I was fully expecting my wife and I to be alone in this theater. <laughs> and uh, and we get... Because for one thing, I live in central Alabama. Documentaries don't usually do very well in central Alabama, not in the theater. And, um, and it was completely sold out. There was no seats left to, that, that didn't have someone sitting in it. So... Uh, and it of course there's it's only showing in one theater in my town for some reason, but that theater was sold out every show for that weekend, so that was pretty cool. Troy, what'd you think? I I absolutely loved it. Um, you know, I I also grew up watching uh, Mister Rogers, and you know, it was just it, it was good to go in for a couple hours and to escape all the nonsense that's going on in the world right now and just just be reminded because the show has been off for quite a while just mm-hmm. be reminded of how loving this guy was and how that wasn't a character he put on that was him and you know he just he loved and accepted everybody and he tackled topics that were um not the easiest to, to talk about um, whether it was race or death or something like that and you know it, it was just it was it just made you feel good um, but at the same time it, it made you sad that there's really no one like him right now anymore and we need somebody like him now more than ever yeah because if you watch kids TV now, even even on public television, it's all fast, 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 go, go, go. Yeah. It doesn't... Mr. Rogers was not afraid to just say, Hey, do you want to know how long a minute actually is? Well, right. I'm going to show you. <laughs> and then he would just stare at the camera for a minute while, uh, while a yep. clock, while he had a clock next to him, you know, or something like that. It was... He slowed it down. He went at the, he went at the pace that a four- or five-year-old... Uh, would be comfortable with and and it was it was great you know I watched it every afternoon when I was a kid until I was probably eleven or twelve you know so and John and Chris I know you guys haven't haven't seen it got any Mister Rogers <laughs> memories <laughs> um kind of no <laughs> like I, I I mean I I remember watching it but I kind of don't remember watching it it's, it's almost like um. Uh, what do you call it? Like a like a uh, uh, sensory deprivation chamber. <laughs> <laughs> like like you go in and then you just kind of get transported somewhere else, and you come out and you realize that it happened and you know that you were there. I'm I'm not I'm not I'm not sounding positive about it, but it was positive. 
I'm not saying it was a bad thing. I'm just saying it was it was always so uh, calming. I think that I I just kind of don't remember it much. Yeah. Like I, I remember you know Sesame Street. And I remember Electric Company because that was like action. That was kind of where my mind went more toward. Um, I watched Mr. Rogers, but I can't tell you much about it. Okay. And I'm going to be with John on this one. I remember Mr. Rogers. I'm sure I watched it every day because that's all I did was watch TV, especially growing up in the 70s when you had three channels and PBS. That was sometimes the only option. So I know I watched it, but I don't recall much about it except for the, the little trolley that went around and yeah. the mailman came sometimes and it's that pup that looked like Phyllis Diller. And another puppet that went, right. meow, 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 Mr. Rogers, meow, meow, the cat puppet. Right. And I don't recall it giving me any kind of seminal life lesson, but I don't have any bad memories of it. It was just Mr. Rogers. It was, it was kind of boring, <laughs> but it but it was ever present. It was <laughs> – so if I see this documentary, it's funny because I'm wondering if the age difference has something to do with it. If you guys are looking at it with some form of nostalgia because maybe you came a little bit after the Mr. Rogers phenomenon where for me it was just reality, I, I don't know. No, I, I think, think well, it, because Mr. Rogers started – the show started in the 60s. I wouldn't have started watching it until the 80s. Yeah, yeah and I think we're all about the same age. No, because by the, yeah. 80s, by the 80s, I was way too old to watch Mr. Rogers. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, I'm talking about like 72 to 75 here. Yeah, well, he was, was on the air watching. at the time. I, 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 yeah. I, but, um, yeah, I mean, definitely there there is a lot of that. But I, I think that even if you didn't watch the show, I think that you would get something out of the documentary. Because, oh, I'm sure yeah. of that. Yeah. yeah, I don't, yeah. I'm probably not going to see it in a theater, but I'll definitely see it when it's like available for uh, rental or. or Redbox or on the bed. I have a collection of. Uh, I've told you guys before. I've got a collection of the Funko Pop figures on my bookshelf. I'm looking at them right now, and I have just between Tony Stark and Mr. T, I have Mr. Rogers. <laughs> <laughs> the trifecta. That's yeah. Right. <laughs> so they're so they're alphabetical then. No, they're not alphabetical. They're just. I have all my Star Wars at one end. And, no, then, I'm just, I'm just, and then Marvel is at the other end, and Mr. Rogers is kind of wound up there in the middle somewhere. <laughs> From Mr. to T to... Yeah, Mr. <laughs> there you go. I have all my Mr.s. Yeah, I got my Mr.s together. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. T and Mr. Rogers. <laughs> that would make a cool buddy cop movie, Mr. Rogers and Mr. T. <laughs> they actually, randomly, on um, Epic Rap Battles of History... No, so I don't. Still, I don't doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was it was Mr. T versus Mr. Rogers. Was it really? <laughs> yes. I'm gonna say Mr. Rogers won. It was really funny. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> but, you yeah. know, aside from Mr. T's like really outrageous look for 1983, he had a lot in common with Mr. Rogers, especially with his Saturday morning cartoon. He was always like a champion of you know, do the right thing and like teaching moral lessons with his cartoon. Yeah. So they're not as far afield as you might think. Oh, yeah. I used to love that cartoon. And he was the guy that killed Mickey. I mean, come on. <laughs> right. <laughs> Eat your vegetables. Don't do drugs. <laughs> Drink your milk. Yeah.
behind your back to try to rouse something in my heart that's dead. You can't. Heathcliff's not a man, but something dark and horrible to live with. Do you imagine, Catherine, that I don't know why you're acting so? Because you love him. Oh, Heathcliff, you must not do this villainous thing. She hasn't harmed you. You have. Then punish me. I'm going to. When I take her in my arms, when I kiss her, when I promise her life and happiness. Oh, Heathcliff, if there's anything human left in you, don't do this. Oh, Heathcliff, why won't you let me come near you? You're not black and horrible as they all think. You're full of pain. I can make you happy. Let me try. You won't regret it. I'll be your slave. I can bring life back to you, new and fresh. All you have to do is to shoot. They'll thank me for it. The whole world will say I did right in ridding it of a rotten gypsy beggar. Yes, they'll say that. Shoot and you'll be master here again. The whole country will resound with your courage, Hindley. Go on, shoot your puling chicken of a man with not enough blood in your veins to keep your hands steady. Uh, okay, so let's talk about Wuthering Heights from uh, 1939. It's, it's based on the novel by Emily Bronte. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> Troy, <laughs> Troy's already grown. Wow. I mean, I'm not. I'm not gonna lie. Out of the out of the three that we're gonna talk about tonight, this is probably my least favorite. But we'll, but we're, we're gonna we're gonna get into it. It's uh, starring. You guys have to help me if I mispronounce some of these names wrong. Meryl Oberyn, is that right? Uh, Lauren, oh, yeah. Lawrence Olivier, uh, David Niven, and and uh, Flora Robson. And here's a brief summary from IMDb. A servant in the house of Wuthering Heights tells a traveler the unfortunate tale of lovers Kathy and Heathcliff. So, I guess to get started, we should go around the table and just get an overall, what you think of this movie? And then we'll kind of get into what the movie is uh what the movie is about and everything. So, Troy, I'll go ahead and start with first. you. I want to go first. I want to go first. Okay, John, you go first. You haven't seen it. <laughs> right. I didn't see it. Okay. Right, so now you're up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Troy, what'd you think of this movie? This movie sucked so <laughs> bad. Um, it, it, it was it was boring. It was dull. People say that you know this is so it's so romantic. It's it's. It's this or that. It's, it's a timeless romance. No. These people were horrible. They did horrible things to each other. It, it was... Uh, it, it, uh. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't like this movie at all. Well, at the, all. the horrible things they did weren't interesting to watch? No, because... It, it, it was... It, they were acting stupid. They're like, oh, you know, I'm... I'm going to leave you for this guy, but I'm going to come back. Well, now you're back. I'm going to leave. Then, then I'm going to come back. And it's just, yeah. <laughs> and yet, for some reason, they still loved each other. I don't know why. It, uh, this this movie hurt my head. It really did. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me flip to the other side of the coin and ask Chris what he thought. John, Troy is wrong. It was fascinating to watch. <laughs> it was absolutely riveting to watch this toxic love affair, this blackness just unfold on this uh, on the screen. I was an English major from way back when, so the name Bronte really strikes like PS, P, P, PSTD? What's, what's, uh, PTSD. <laughs> PTSD, thank yeah. you. Uh, and I was practicing that all day. Damn it. PTSD. Um <laughs> Because I really don't like the work of most of the Bronte, you know, canon. 
so I watched this. I was thinking this is going to suck. It's going to be melodramatic. It's going to be bad romance. But it was so twisted and so dark because it wasn't like the stock movie romance. It was about people who loved each other, but because of their stations in life, because of their own insecurities and because of their own selfishness, just completely sabotaged, sabotaged each other at every turn. And to watch that unfold in a movie from the 30s being so um, subtle and weird and just, like I said, dark and black, I was I was fascinated the entire time through. And not to mention the fact that I loved pretty much every one of the actors cast from when they were playing kids to the adults. I mean, geez, I've never seen Laurence Olivier in anything, but he was he, he was the standard for the matinee idol. Now I understand where people get that term from. I mean, he, he was roguish and charismatic and just everything about him. Everybody in this movie had such screen presence. It, so, it, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Was, so was it set in the 30s or was it set in the... Oh, no. No, it was set in... Yeah, it was a period piece set, I guess, in the late 1800s. Um, and that's why you had sort of the, the class struggle in it because you had um, Heathcliff who was basically like a servant, uh, an, an orphan that was adopted into Wuthering Heights. Um, falling in love with the daughter of the man who owned the land, and they were part of the landed gentry. So I guess they 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 would talk about going to the Grange. They were probably subjects of the squire, who owned all the land. And the squire is the guy who like is basically the law in that patch, and he he kind of hires the tenant farmers, but everybody answers to him. So it seems like they were sort of in in the middle of the upper echelon. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. I will okay. I, I actually watched the movie twice, and the reason for that is because I watched it a month or so back because we were gonna talk about this on the last show that we did, but then we ended up doing the sci-fi show instead. By the time I started writing my notes this week for this show, I couldn't remember anything about it. <laughs> so I was like, "Oh crap! I gotta go back and watch this movie again." I, all I could remember that was that. I did. I mean, I can't say that it's a terrible movie, but I, I didn't find it fascinating. I thought that I agree with Troy in that every I hate everybody in this movie. Yes. <laughs> I mean, they're just they're just terrible people, and um, so I'm not gonna. I, if I had to rate it, I would probably give it like maybe two stars. The second time I watched it, I thought it was a little bit better than the first time I watched it, but. Not because of any of the the characters. The actors were okay. You know, the only thing that I had seen Lawrence Olivier in before this was I was forced to watch a version of Othello that he was in uh, when I was in college, where he was basically in blackface the whole time. It was really weird <laughs> that they required us to watch that. But um, but let me get a little bit into the into the plot. So the this guy comes to Wuthering Heights. Wuthering Heights is the name of the land that this house or it's the name of the house, you know. So he's just been hired on as a uh, as a servant or or a, a tenant, and uh, he gets there and he has to spend the night in the main house, you know. And they put him in a room, and while he's in there, he hears a ghost outside. He hears a woman calling. And uh, he calls, he, he screams, and Heathcliff comes running in, and he freaks out, kicks the guy out of the room, and then he just goes, like, he like jumps out the window and goes running out into the into the darkness or whatever. So uh, the housekeeper starts telling the dude 
the story of Kathy and Heathcliff. And it's one of those romances where they can't ever seem to get together. One of them's always with someone else or, or whatever, but they they married other people. She basically married someone to kind of get at Heathcliff, you know, and uh, and he uh, and he did the same because he married that guy's sister. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. What I'm thinking about fight routine. Yeah. Exactly. And then but, I don't know. If- one thing that I, one thing that I that really got at me is that there's a scene they never show them actually fall in love. They show them as kids, and then the next scene they show them as like not adults but like teenagers or whatever. And then all of a sudden they're in love, you know. And they uh, and they go out into the moors, which is I don't know exactly what the moors are. I guess it's just it looks like it's just a big field, and um, they go out there and they just kind of stare at each other. <laughs> and they and they stroke each other's face and that kind of stuff and and uh and then th- they'll go back to the house and it's like that afternoon all of a sudden she acts like she hates him again. I was like, yes. "What? Are you bipolar? I mean, what's going yes, on?" Yes, <laughs> she was. That's why it was so great. <laughs> <laughs> but um Yeah, I mean, I I just felt like and it may be a thing of the of the period of the, the film period that we're talking about, because I felt that the performances were, they were just being too dramatic. You know, it's like, let me, uh, she, she'll ask him a question and he'll stare off into the distance for 10 seconds before he'll answer the question. You know, that, that soap opera kind of, kind of, kind of drama. <laughs> but now, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that the movie is, I don't even want to say that it doesn't belong on this list. I it just it didn't connect with me and it it just everybody got on my nerves because Heathcliff <laughs> Heathcliff is supposed to, Heathcliff is supposed to be the character that we're supposed to feel bad for at the beginning because he was a orphan um and 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 then he comes into the family and the old man that's the head of the family at the time treats him well, but when he dies, the son that takes over treats him like crap, just treats him like a stable hand, and talks down to him all the time, and all of that. Well, later on, when Heathcliff becomes rich, because because he suddenly remembered that his father was Chinese royalty. <laughs> you know that he was joking about that. I, I, that- I, was, I was waiting to hear what the truth was, and I yeah, never heard He never heard the said truth. how he got rich, but that was a callback to Kathy specifically because she said that to him when they were children on the moors. You're not an orphan. You don't know, but your father is Chinese royalty. Your mother is an Indian princess. Now, I forgot, so about, he, I forgot about that. He okay. was saying that in the hall to like as a callback to her. And it just shows, you know, how intertwined their lives are. Yeah. You don't you never know how he made his money. And it really doesn't make any difference. You just know he's like the County Monte Cristo. He comes sweeping in and exacting his revenge on Henry because Henry is such a freaking douche. Yeah, no, I get that. I get why he would do that, but he seemed like he was exacting revenge on everybody. And I just felt like the way that he was treated towards the beginning would make him a little more I don't know, more down to earth as a rich person later, but it just didn't work out that way. He became he became pretty bad himself once he got his money. Awesomely bad. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and for me, look, I can 
I can put up with characters being crappy to each other or being, you know, dicks to each other, basically. If there's some kind of redeeming quality to them later on, but there's not to either of these horrible, horrible people. They, they, they were just awful people the entire time. And I, I get, I get why it's on the list because I mean, a lot of movies since then have clearly drawn inspiration from this. And I get that, but it. It, it it just didn't I mean it just didn't resonate with me. There was just nothing redeeming about this film that I enjoyed. It was pretty to look at, I'll give you that. It was beautifully shot, but that's about it. Yeah, you've also got so Kathy supposedly she loves Heathcliff. And the only reason that I could see that she didn't go with Heathcliff was because she didn't want to be poor. It was it was two things, Sean. Yes, she was selfish and awful, and she didn't want to be poor, and that was always a a, a driving motivation for her. And Heathcliff called her out on it mm-hmm. uh, several times throughout the movie. But I think also if you if you think about when the Brontes were writing, is this Charlotte Bronte, Emily Bronte? I don't know. They're all interchangeable. <laughs> but um, class was a big deal, especially in those circles. So for Kathy. To fall for Heathcliff is not socially acceptable, and what is it going to look like to everyone? So she's worried about that. And then, you know, of course, because of melodrama, Heathcliff only only happens to overhear her talking about how he's a dirty gypsy beggar that she can never love. Right. And then she relents and says, but I love him with all my heart, and my life is nothing without him. But, of course, he's run off into the barn by then and, like, put his hands through the window because he's batshit crazy, too. So... (laughs) I mean, it was just so great to watch these jerks unravel and understand sort of the, the, the social pressures that they were under. Like Heathcliff, okay, one guy took him in, but what do you think his life was like in that house? He was basically known as the dirty gypsy beggar his entire life. Mm-hmm. Of course he's going to come back with a giant F.U. stick and beat everybody that he can see because they have been giving him the business his entire life. So I, I can understand that, too. The melodrama? Yeah. Dripping with melodrama. But I also think, like, being an, you know, an opera fan for close to a decade, maybe more now, has inured me to melodrama. I mean, that last act when she's dying in bed, it's right out of, like, Traviata. It's right out of La Boheme. So it's stuff that I'm really familiar with. I can gloss over that because it was just part of the form. But... I, I still found everything that you guys didn't like about how unlikable they were to be the redeeming quality of the movie. Otherwise, it would have just been like 1930s pablum, like the romance that you expected. Instead, it was just about these jerks with their twisted black blackness. I, I, I it completely, completely sideswiped me. I loved it. Yeah, that, that death scene was. Uh... It's yeah, pretty crazy. I, know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, especially and then and then she dies. He he takes her to the window and lets her and stands her on her feet. For one thing, she's dying. Don't stand her up on her feet. And then when she <laughs> dies, she just kind of slumps down. He picks her up. Now her husband's coming back into the room by this point, and he says, "Leave her alone. She belongs to me." <laughs> <You know? laughs> the corpse, right? Yeah. <laughs> if that's all. If that's all you got, that's all yeah. you got. That, you know? that, that also, I mean. 
you've got Henley. Of course, it's obvious why he's terrible. I mean, he was meant to be terrible from the beginning. He was he, he was the abuser that started the whole thing. Edgar, uh, David David Niven, is that, yeah, David Niven, he is a character that I, I kind of felt for because she married him and was obviously still in love with Heathcliff, but didn't really make it a secret that she was in love with Heathcliff at all. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and so I felt sorry for him, but he was, he also treated Heathcliff like he was an animal, you know, he, he, he didn't treat him any better than anybody else did. So, so he had that. And then the, the only person that I really don't hate is Isabella because, and basically by the end of the movie, she's a zombie, you know, that, wasn't that the greatest? I think they changed uh, it from the book because I think in the book, she died. I and need context. What kind okay, of zombie? No, I mean she's not 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 actually a zombie. <laughs> it's just that no, 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 I, no, I know. I mean, she I married a so she married a man that was so totally in love with someone else that it just drained the life out of her. So uh, we see we see them get married, and then just a couple minutes later, and the next scene is a, it's a, a few years down the line, and she just looks like a like a worn out woman. You know, she's just yeah. uh-huh. she's just drained of it. So. She was so vibrant and beautiful in the scenes leading up to that, that the change in her was so marked. It showed you like what a bastard Heathcliff was to her. And still, she's just like, let me love you. Let, forget about her. I'm here right now for you. Be happy with me. And he's like, nope, can't do it. Sorry. You know, and just that that visual cue about how he just wore her down and took everything that was good about her. And squandered it and destroyed it. Yeah. Another thing that I never expected to see in a movie like this. Okay, we'll rate the movie, Chris. I'm going to give it a solid three stars. Um, if you're not a fan of movies of this era and you don't have a, a high tolerance for melodrama, <laughs> it's definitely going to be a, a slog to get through. But if you can put that stuff aside and just see like all of the weird interplay that's going on and all the subtext and not even subtext in a lot of times, it, it's really fascinating. And it was a huge surprise because I sat down to watch this and I was like, what did I get myself into? <laughs> <laughs> all right, Troy. Uh, I, I have to give it a half. Half a star. I mean, <laughs> Honestly, I, I I hope I never see this film ever again. That's how much I hated it. Well, it is. Uh, and listeners, if you would like to, <laughs> if you would like to watch it, it is available for free on YouTube. So, which yeah, is how I saw it. Oh, yeah, which ticked me off because the first time I watched it, I paid three bucks to see it, and then I realized it was free <laughs> on YouTube when I watched it the other night. So. Um, okay, one thing that I do with all these is I I look up some uh, behind the scenes facts to for each movie. So I've got a couple, I've got a few facts for this film. So uh, Lawrence Olivier found himself increasingly annoyed with William Wyler's exhausting style of filmmaking. After yet another take, he is said to exclaim, "For God's sake! I did it sitting down. I did it with a smile. I did it with a smirk. I did it scratching my ear. I did it with my back to the camera. How do you want me to do it?" And Wilder's <laughs> retort was, "I want it better." However, <laughs> uh, Olivier later said these multiple takes uh, helped make him helped him succeed as a film actor. Uh, David Niven. Now, David Niven is someone that I know 
was like an actor whose name was on the the marquee a lot in those days. But he's also someone that I haven't seen a lot of his films. The only movie that I remember seeing him in was Casino Royale. <laughs> so if you guys have ever seen that, it's the uh, it's the comedy version of uh, James Bond. So I do recommend it. It's it's pretty cool. Um, David Niven dreaded the film not only because he was playing a thankless secondary role but because he dreaded working with William Wyler again. Uh, Meryl Oberyn was uncomfortable working with Niven after their year-long love affair that ended in 1936. Uh, Laurence Olivier's first on-set confrontation occurred in a dispute with Meryl Oberyn. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing her name wrong. Um, Although they had worked together happily in The Divorce of Lady X in 1938, Olivier now resented that she had the role that he felt should have gone to Vivian Lee. He and Vivian Lee were either married or in a relationship at the time. Vivian Lee, of course, played Scarlett O'Hara in the uh, in Gone with the Wind. In one particularly passionate scene, she became upset that Olivier kept letting spit fly from his mouth <laughs> and, uh, land, and land on her. And he said, why, you amateur little bitch? <laughs> he said, what's a little spit, for Christ's sake, between actors, you bloody little idiot? How dare you speak to me? And he stormed off the set. She stormed off the set in tears. And uh, the director was forced. He, he had to force Olivier to apologize to her. Um, the film that's because op- when you enunciate, you spit. Yes, that's true. You do. <laughs> if you don't spit, they can't hear it in the back of the house. That's right. <laughs> the film only depicts 16 of the novel's 34 chapters. And it's set in the 19th century. There you go, John. It's set in the 19th century, but the the book was set in uh, 1771. So they, they, they set the, so they, the movie so, uh, 100 years later or 200 So they did later. a modern update, but still a period piece from 200 years before. Got yeah, it. Uh, well, 100 years. Yeah, 100 they, years they, later. They, right. Right. But, no, I uh, mean, but 200 years before... They it. Right, I mean, yeah. They and the thing well, no, was I'll, that there were yeah. characters in the in the in the book that, and I've never read the book. I'm getting all this from the internets. Um, there were characters in the book that they had children. Heathcliff and and Kathy both had children, and their children fell in love. And there was a whole second generation part to the story. They didn't. They didn't <sighs> film any of that. They didn't. And they this, didn't put this is why that. you don't read Brontes. <laughs> <laughs> They didn't put any of that in the book. I mean, in the movie. So um, now, Vivian Lee did want to play the lead role alongside her then lover and future husband Lawrence Olivier, but studio executives decided that the role should go to Oberon. Uh, they later offered Lee the part of Isabel, but she declined, and Geraldine Fitzgerald was cast. Um, about five hundred acres of the hills were stripped of their natural vegetation and 15,000 pieces of tumbleweed were brought in and topped with purple painted sawdust to resemble heather. Fill my arms with all the heather they can carry. <laughs> so they even, just, even they, nature was screwed over by this film. <laughs> yeah. They destroyed the landscape. Man. You think they could have uh, just moved to a place that... Okay, never mind. The, the moors have to be windswept, barren, and craggy, okay? They're the yeah. moors. Right, but there are windswept, barren, and craggy actual places. <laughs> not not within 30 miles of L.A., buddy. Yeah, I yeah, know. right. 
this one's a little dark. As animal lovers were incensed when they read in a press release that to keep the barnyard noises from overwhelming the soundtrack, the animal trainer had snipped the vocal cords of the ducks and the geese on the set. Wow. Yeah. And the animals were screwed. Yeah. That is hey, the, <laughs> this gets more dark and twisted with every <laughs> sentence. I yeah. love it. Peter, Peter wasn't around back then. <laughs> it wouldn't have stood for that. And uh, the last one is that in the departure from the novel, there is an afterlife scene in which we see Heathcliff and Kathy walking hand in hand, visiting their favorite place, Pennistone Crag. Uh, William Wyler hated the scene and didn't want to do it, but Samuel Goldwyn vetoed him on that score. Goldwyn subsequently claimed, I made Wuthering Heights, you only directed it. And that Ooh. scene did nothing for me. I Because I hated those two characters so much, I didn't care that they were going to spend eternity together. <laughs> they deserve each other. <laughs> okay. So, moving on from Wuthering Heights... Sean, did you ever rate it? I, yeah, I gave it two and a half stars. Two and a half. So we yeah. got a half, two and a half, and three. If I had rated it after the first time I watched it, I probably would have given it one. The second, <laughs> the second time was a little better, but I still, I just, I don't know. It's just, it's just something about movies. This, there's just something about movies where I just hate it, hate all the characters. I, I need someone that I can cling on to, you know. Um, it's kind of like, you know, when a movie makes me, when I, when the movie ends and I just feel bad for everybody, it's kind of like why I don't really <laughs> care for Batman versus Superman because I felt bad for everybody at the end of that movie, you know? <laughs> so, okay. Come closer. I want to talk to you. I'm going to tell you an astounding story. The story of the Maltese Falcon. 600 years, the falcon has carried the mystery of a fabulous wealth under its grotesque wings. I could tell you a thousand tales of the men and women who have hunted this evil bird. But every story has the same ending. Murder. Listen to these incredible people, all consumed by their passionate greed for the Maltese falcon. What have you ever given me beside money? Have you ever given me any of your confidence, any of the truth? Haven't you tried to buy my loyalty with money and nothing else? What else is there I can buy you with? I don't care who loves who, I won't play the sap for you. I haven't lived a good life. I've been bad. Worse than you could know. talking about a lot more money than this. There are more of us to be taken care of now. Well, that may be, but I've got the falcon. You may have the falcon, but we certainly have you. I take a lot of writing from you I'm going to take. Get up and shoot it out. Stop it. The police will be here any minute. Now talk. Oh, how can you accuse me of such a terrible... This isn't the time for that schoolgirl act. We're both of us sitting under the gallows. <laughs> Maltese Falcon from 1941, starring Humphrey Bogart, Mary, a is it Astor or Astor? Astor. Astor, okay. Uh, Gladys George, Peter Lorre, and Sidney Greenstreet, directed by John Huston, who is the father of Angelica Huston, and we talked about him uh, once before. Troy, remember we watched um, 
Yankee Doodle Dandy. He was in that. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Um, okay, so Sam Spade is the hard-boiled detective, and he's hired to help a woman find her missing sister. And what happens instead is that he's pulled into a world of mystery and murder by a group of people who have dedicated their lives to finding the fabled Maltese Falcon. So, let's go around the table again. John, what did you think of the Maltese Falcon? This was the only one on the list that I'd actually seen before. Um, I, I, I saw this, um, I mean, probably decades ago, but as an adult, old enough for me to understand it. Um, I thought that I would like it more now, seeing it again, and I did not. I, it, was, <laughs> it was okay. It was okay. Like, some of the lines were great. I wrote down some of my favorite lines. But, <laughs> uh, what was it? Um, when you're slapped, you'll take it and like it. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> Don't crowd me, Tom. I love it. What's your boyfriend getting at? And I like that. <laughs> What's your boyfriend getting at? <laughs> um, it's, it is absolutely beautiful. Directed. It, it was, it's like every shot of, is a monochromatic still it's looks great uh the acting is good the dialogue is good the plot is so intentionally inveigling i mean i could it's not that i couldn't keep up with it it's that i didn't necessarily care to keep up with it (laughs) because everybody's uh some bitch (laughs) (laughs) you know I mean, it's, it's, so it's twists and turns, and oh, it's double cross and triple cross. I'm like, okay, but I don't, I'm not invested in, it's not like Ocean's Eleven. You know what I'm saying? I'm not rooting for any of these people. I'm kind of rooting for Sam just because he's unraveling the mystery. I mean, they drop you right in the middle of, kind of the, the the latter stages of this adventure while they're tracing while they're chasing down the bird. Yeah, this is kind of like a, a, a chapter out of a bigger story. Yeah. Um, so I appreciated it technically, but as far as the, the way the story was told, it wasn't really my cup of tea. Um, but so, all right, here's here's the question. (laughs) Um, the, the movies on our list, are these just like straight the next three on the list? Yeah, yeah. Unless okay. we ju- unless we just decide to to go down a side so, road and and do, and do something else. Okay, so I didn't see uh, Weathering Heights, as you know, but uh, I watched Maltese Falcon earlier today, and I watched uh, Double Indemnity later. And there does seem to be a theme of just really poor judgment and toxic relationships. Yeah, they get, they they really do go together. I mean, is that just like their thing? <laughs> I mean, I, that, that was like the first thing I was like, Sam Spade has terrible taste in women. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> was, that was film noir from the forties, man. That's, yeah, that's that, that was. I know, uh, but well, I mean, I get it's not it's not even like, oh, okay, she's a femme fatale, and you know, she's a bad girl, but you you know, you kind of get what the attraction. It's like no, like this one and um, Double Indemnity. It's like they, you've had a two-minute conversation with her. All right, how are you, how are you, 
how are you willing to jump into the fire with her uh, for this chick that you know is bad news? You know she's bad news. And it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I and, I, but, I lost, but you can tell that he kind of he kind of gets off on that, you know. Exactly. He, he, he he likes he likes the bad girls. <laughs> I know, but it's, but it's I think I think maybe that's what it is about his character that didn't sit with me, that didn't sit right with me, because you know he's a he's a he's a man of the world. He's been around. He knows the score. You know, he's got his ear to the whatever the '30s slang for <laughs> 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 understanding the nature of your surroundings. So he, he's he's fully aware, and yet he does the stuff as though he's not aware. That's the thing that bugs me. Like he's super cynical, except for uh, when it comes to her. Kind of. It's it's it felt it felt like there was. It, I would have liked it better if he was just consistently cynical, and. It, but it's, it's that they kept trying to have him feel remorse, <laughs> remorse <laughs> about the shitty things he does. Like when he doesn't feel bad about it, I'm I'm on board because that seems like a consistent character. But you know, every now and then, he he feels bad about how he's treating her. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, it yeah. just just it does it. It, it like it pulls me out of it. It pulled me out of it. Um, yeah, I don't know if that counts as a review, but those are my um, <laughs> those are my stream of consciousness. Troy, yeah, Troy, what do you think? <laughs> um, I've, I'm finding out with this list that I actually really enjoy film noir. Um, I really liked this one. Uh, I mean, I've I've heard that. You know, last line, the stuff that dreams are made of. I've heard that for years, and it was it was cool to finally see it in context of what he was actually talking about. Um, I, I I I like the fact that Humphrey Bogart, Sam Spade, that he was he was kind of a misogynist. He was a jerk. Um, you know. Uh, calling his his secretary doll and sweetheart and all this and yeah um the best moment of that movie by the way yeah (laughs) (laughs) best example of her gender um and yeah i i just i thoroughly enjoyed it um i i like the i like the plot i liked you know their their macguffin of this uh, multi this bejeweled falcon and and there wasn't a whole lot of action in it really not any um you know one guy gets shot but that's about it and it was just it was just fun to watch even though you know you never thought that sam was ever in trouble because he pretty much talked his way out of everything with everybody including the police and it was just it was just fun it's a it's a fun movie. Okay, Chris, what do you think? Uh, I'm gonna say, eh. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Un- understand um, that I bring some baggage to this film that is beyond the film. I've I read the book years ago. I wasn't crazy about it. Um, 
Dashiell Hammett also created two of my very favorite film characters, Nick and Nora Charles. And I tried to read The Thin Man. I wasn't crazy about it. So I'm not crazy about Hammett's writing. Um, on the other side of it, the movie side, Bogart was kind of a red flag for me because just maybe two or three weeks ago, I read Raymond Chandler's The Big Sleep and uh, yeah. Farewell, My Lovely. And then I went and I watched the Bogie and McCall version of The Big Sleep, and I couldn't stand Humphrey Bogart in that. So when I saw that not only was he Philip Marlowe, but now he's Sam Spade, a character who I didn't really like in the book, I was like, all right, am I going to like this at all? Um, I loved Bogie in this movie. He was having a ball. I think this was Bogie before he became Bogie, before yeah. he just came on screen and just act like Nicholson, when he was still actually kind of acting before he became a persona. And you could tell that he was just, you know, engaged in every scene he was in. Peter Lorre, amazing as yeah. Cairo. I mean, right out of the book. He was he was cast perfectly. And Sidney Greenstreet, Nero Wolf himself, I listen to a lot of old time radio, so it's great to see him on screen too. Um the other O'Shaughnessy though, in the novel, she is just like this this knockout redhead vamp. And who was the Mary Astor? Yeah, was yeah. it so woefully miscast? And now I understand that back then people looked older than they were. I think Bogart in this was uh, almost 10 years younger than I am now when he was in that movie. I think he was like 41. I'm 48. He looked like he's in his mid 50s. Yeah. And Mary Astor, instead of a vamp, she looked like a school marm. I don't know if it was the styles. I don't know what it was, but it was just yeah. like I had a real hard time buying that he would be bewitched enough by her to follow this this facocta scheme to its conclusion. <laughs> and that's what you were saying, John. It's just yeah. like he was self-aware and he is cynical, but at the same time, he's bored by it all. So let's just see where this takes us. I mean, yeah. this is the guy whose partner was just shot and he's he's banging his wife. You know what I mean? That's the, mm-hmm. it, <laughs> yeah. He's been banging her since before the guy was, was killed. And that was right out of the book, too. But he, he is not a sympathetic character, and he doesn't have any sort of affinity for anything or allegiance to anybody. So for him, this was all a lark. And Bogart played that perfectly. He would talk himself out of every situation. He could, he could smart talk when he had to. But that also calls back to the novel. Another reason I didn't like the book was it just, at the, at the end of the day, turned out to just be people in apartments or offices talking to each other throughout the entire thing. Yeah. So... Mm-hmm. This movie kind of picked up on that. And even though they had wonderful actors doing wonderful performances, like I just mentioned, it never really became more than the sum of its parts. I found my attention wandering towards the end of this like it was wandering when I was reading the book. I, yeah, I mean, I'm just going to – as you as you were talking, that's, that's what crystallized in my mind too. Uh, like there were individual scenes that were great. The, the acting is great and the, the dialogue is great. And the performances were great. Like, there were scenes that were great, but were strung together. It, it's like the, the, they didn't knit a plot well together to have these scenes take place. Like, in, in the order that they took place. <laughs> yeah, I get some of that. I mean, I, I'll, put, I'll put my cards on the table. This is one of my favorite movies Ever like if I had to make a top ten list, this would be at like number nine, number eight, something like that. I, I the first time I saw this movie was I was in high school. I used to stay up late and watch the Classic Movie Channel a lot because they showed a lot of old sci-fi classics and stuff on the weekends. 
but they showed this one night and I, I, I fell in love with it. I love the, the short, quick dialogue. Uh, and I like the story. I, I love that it doesn't end the way that you expect it to. And, and Spade is like this flawed hero. He's a detective, but he's not a cop. So he's not necessarily one of the good guys. You know, <laughs> he doesn't, he doesn't work to get on the side of justice. He works for his client unless there's more money involved in working for himself, you know? So at one point he's offered so much money to deliver the, the, the Falcon that the fact that it's delivered to him by a man that's riddled with bullets and dies in front of him doesn't stop him from trying to cash it in, you know? So he, uh, he goes, uh, he goes far enough that he wants to give Gutman's bodyguard Wilmer up to, as, as the fall guy, you know? And what you were saying, Chris, about all, all the, uh, the action taking place off camera and all, then these are all scenes of like the dialogue between the action scenes or something. I kind of like that. You know, it, it, it's, it's an adventure, but all we see are the conversations. You know, you don't realize it because I think that the dialogue is so well written. It's not natural. I mean, people don't talk like that, <laughs> but, uh, but it, it just sounds great the way that they say it. Yeah, it is. It's whip crack and it's engaging. And it wasn't so much a lack of action that that turned me off. I don't really care about action so much. The action was not done well, so yeah. the, I was fine with the lack of it when they <laughs> when they tried to do it, it. It didn't like the fight scenes were laughable, choreographed. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It, I, I loved like the the scene where uh, Peter Laurie first comes in. Uh, yeah, that's great. And he. Uh, he holds Spade at gunpoint and tells him, you know, I'm going to search your office and everything. And Spade gets the, gets the upper hand, knocks him out. And then when he wakes up, he hires him and then he pulls his gun on him again, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And it's like, you can't trust anybody, (laughs) you know, everybody is out for themselves. And so, because you're, you're supposed to believe that the, the, the wealth that you would get from being in possession of the Maltese Falcon would be so life changing that you'll do anything to get it. And you also get the sense that, like I said earlier, this is like a chapter out of a much bigger story. That's one of the things I, I, I wish that at the end, they made a line at the end when, when Gutman uh, and, and Cairo take off out of the office at the, at the end and they're going back to the docks. Um, you know, Spade says, that he he calls the the police and he tells them whether well they'll be able to find them at the docks or whatever. I wish that that line had been left out, so that I would get the sense that this story is going to carry on, and it's going they're going to go back to whatever country they were searching for the Falcon in the first place, and that this is just something that's going to keep going on and on and on. Well, I I got the sense that he didn't he told them where they were going, but he was like, oh, you hurry up or you might miss them. Yeah, so, that's true. So if that's they true. they could easily they could very well have gotten away. And I also got the sense that they were smart enough to know that Spade was going to make that call and yeah. probably will easily evade capture and go on for the adventure. If that makes you feel better, Sean. Yeah, <laughs> it does. It does. <laughs> yeah, and, and I want Spade to go with him, personally. Yeah. And and for me, that's kind of why I liked uh, Sam Spade, um, why I liked that character. Because, yeah, he was he was a jerk the whole time. He was pretty much out for himself. But at the very end, he kind of kind of redeems himself. He kind of basically turns everybody in, um, and so he he did have a little bit of a, a redeeming 
um, arc there at at the end, and I and I appreciated that. Uh, I don't know. I I haven't seen uh, a lot of Humphrey Bogart films. Um, I'm about to doing this list. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I I really liked his acting. I thought you know. Like you said, he he was having a ball with this role. He he was really enjoying himself, and that really came across uh, in the film. And it, it was just it was a lot of fun to watch. And yes, most pretty much every scene takes place in a certain room with people sitting and talking. But to me, I think the writing personally was so good that it kept it engaging and it kept the story going and. You know, it was just – it was really uh, uh, interesting to listen to because, you know, this is a 40s film noir. The the, the dialogue is so fast-paced and, and everything goes so quickly and it's just – it's just fun. Yeah, I didn't think about it until, um, uh, until, you, until you said that just now, but about he kind of redeems himself at the end. But at the very beginning, after his partner gets shot, the, the cops are like the cops are like, okay. Well, you know, you got to work with us. He's like, no. The best thing that I can do is just keep you guys at bay, figure this out on my own, and then I'll call you when I get it figured out. Yeah. And you yeah. kind of forget that he says that because you know he's making these allegiances and he's doing this and he's you know he's making this plan and this game. But at the end, that like that's the game he's playing the whole time. That's exactly what he does. He, yeah, but, he figures it out and then he turns them in. But is that redemption or is that him being self-serving? Because oh, no, no, you no, remember I, this movie ended with him needing a fall guy, and no, he was no, going to pin it on Wilmer. But see, until, I, don't know, I don't, I don't know how. If the Falcon I, had not I, had not been fake, it would have changed everything. Yeah, he he would have taken the money and run. He would yeah. not have called the cops. So I mean that's that's it's redemption to the point where now uh, well, he can go back to his status quo and not be in trouble. I don't and know that's I would... what I liked about it. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. Go ahead, John. I, I, I think he would have turned in. I think he would have turned in all of the murderers. Um, I liked that she wasn't a knockout. I liked that she was kind of plain looking because it, it kind of helped sell her con. She wasn't she was, just plain. She was frumpy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he called her on that, too. It's like, well, you got the school mom thing going on. You're not fooling anyone. But she must have fooled a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, but then you're waiting on, on that scene. Like, in, in the 80s, she would have had that school mom thing. You're not fooling anyone. And she would have she would have slowly taken off her horn room glasses and unclipped her hair and whipped it out. And she would have been, you know, the 80s hot girl that was not hot five minutes ago, but now she's a knockout. In this, she was still just like someone that looked like she was in her late fifties. <laughs> and I, I just thought that was just what passed as attractive in the forties. You know, I, I, I didn't see now, that. See, as... But you say that, but look at the Merle Oberon who was in Wuthering Heights and that was from the thirties. And she was a true knockout. And the true. other one that played Isabella was, was absolutely beautiful. So I don't buy that. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> this is one of the first instances, or first uh, examples of film noir that that I know of. Film noir encompasses, and film noir t- technically means black film. You know, so all the movies are all dark. They usually take place in the city. They have a lot of uh, 
themes that have to do with uh, desperation, you know, uh, dark things, themes and, and stuff like that. Um, and a lot of them, when you think of film noir, you think of detective stories because this is what kind of started it. But, you know, it goes into all kinds of film. Western, there's westerns that are considered noir. There's musicals that are considered noir. But a lot of people usually think of detectives and they usually think of this movie. Uh, you, you you have the detective in the 40s. He has a beautiful woman come into his office at the beginning of the story and pulls him into an adventure. And, and Bogart is really well known for this. To tell you the truth, I thought that Sam Spade was a character that was in like a lot of movies. I didn't realize it's just this movie. And uh, I think there may have been one other movie that had Sam Spade, but Humphrey Bogart wasn't playing him. And uh, because that name is so synonymous with this kind of detective story because of this movie. It's even, I don't know if you guys remember, there was, there used to be a show on CBS called without a trace that was about missing people and, and, and things like that. But there was a woman on that show. Her name was Samantha Spade. <laughs> you know? oh. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's synonymous with this movie, but, um, there's also a, a thing that I wanted to talk about a little bit was uh, the Hayes Code. You guys know what the Hayes Code is? I know Chris uh, yeah. probably did. No, I do. Okay, well the Hayes the Hayes Code is a set of rules that were put in place by the Motion Picture Society back in the I think it started in the late 30s. Um, it kind of censored what could and couldn't be said or shown, and this movie was affected by those rules because in the novel that the film was based on, they were very forthcoming in saying that Cairo was homosexual. Yep. But the Hayes Code said, no, that's a no-no. So I thought that Peter Laurie had a great way of portraying the character in a way that insinuated it without having to come out and say it. You know what I'm saying? Would you guys agree with yeah. that? Yeah. I, I didn't mm. think about it at all. Like, I didn't... Um... I didn't know that he was supposed to be, but it certainly fits now that you said it, yeah. Yeah. And then there was also a few lines that kind of skirted the line, like what I said earlier, Bogart saying to the cop, what's your girlfriend getting at? Talking about his, his partner that's there with him. And I also like the fact that the thing that they were going, the MacGuffin that they're going after never actually gets found. You know, the, the Maltese Falcon is the classic MacGuffin. Alfred Hitchcock defined the MacGuffin as the thing that the characters are all after and the audience doesn't care about. You know, nobody nobody yeah. really cares about the Maltese Falcon, but uh but uh I watched another movie to go along with this movie because this is actually the third time that this story was filmed. Uh there was a movie that came out in the 30s called The Maltese Falcon. I don't remember who was in it and i didn't watch that one because uh i couldn't find it there's there's a few scenes from it on youtube but you can't find the movie but i did watch a film called from 1931 called satan met a lady and it starred uh i apologize if y'all hear somebody's shooting fireworks right outside my windows <laughs> uh it starred william dertelli and betty davis and it was essentially the same story but it was a comedy Hmm. He plays uh, he plays Ted Shane, which is that film's version of Sam Spade, and he's much more aloof and less and, and a less serious detective 
than Bogart was, even though he says a lot of the same things. He just says them differently. <laughs> he says them with a lot more sarcasm, you know. Um, there was uh, there was one character named uh, Miss Murgatroyd, who is uh, Shane's secretary, played by Marie Wilson. And she's an airhead, and she's very, very funny. And uh, this movie was pre-Hayes Code, so there was a little more suggestion than the Houston version. Because there was, there was one scene where... Uh, Ted Shane's on the phone with somebody and he, and he says he says something about five hundred dollars and Miss Murgatroyd says hey for five hundred dollars out he says I know what you'll take <laughs> <laughs> but in that version the MacGuffin was not a Maltese Falcon it was a ram's horn from the eighth century which I believe is the same mythology that the Dark Tower originates from because I heard the name Roland in that, <laughs> quick, that quick dialogue a couple of times and it's supposedly stuffed full full of jewels and everything. And, of course, when they find it, it's full of sand. You know, it's, it's the same story. It's just the characters all have different names. And uh, Gutman is a woman instead of a man. You know, things like that. So, but I wonder, did they say that it was based on the Maltese Falcon by Dashiell Hammett? I believe they did. Now, all right, so that's good. In the in all the in all the notes that I found is it, it said like if you look it up on Wikipedia it says based on the Maltese Falcon. I didn't look to see on the credits. No, yeah, I thought maybe on not, screen but, though it could be based, yeah. but they might not have copped to it. And it's funny that you say it was pre Hayes Code because I was thinking, imagine somebody did a serious take on the novel pre Hayes Code, what they might have put in that you know they were forced to leave out in the Bogart version. Yeah. Ah, who knows? All right, so. A few a few facts about the Maltese Falcon. Uh, three of the statuettes still exist and are conservatively valued at over one million dollars each. This makes them some of the most valuable film props ever made. Indeed, each is now worth more than three times what the film cost to make. And uh, and actually, one of them, Humphrey Bogart, dropped while they were filming, and he, and they couldn't use that one. And um, it's still it's in a museum somewhere and it's got a big dent in the tail feathers or something. Um, do, you, do you know how how many they used total? No, I don't. I would assume it would be five or six, but there are three that are known to exist. There may be a couple like in private collections somewhere that nobody knows about or something. But um, surprised someone didn't just steal them off the set <laughs> in those days, but. <laughs> There is an inordinate amount of smoking done by the main actors in this film. Yes. <laughs> they're, they're rolling cigarettes between every other word. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> According true. to the to yep. the, uh, then-studio uh, then employee and future screenwriter Stuart Jerome, this resulted in a feud between studio head Jack Warner and stars Humphrey Bogart and Peter Lorre. Warner hated to see actors smoking on the screen, fearing it would prompt smokers in the movie audience to step out into the lobby for a cigarette. During during filming, he was, told John. Was, oh, that's surprisingly progressive. They didn't like. Oh no, it's because he was. I got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's worried about the money. Uh, during filming, he told John Huston that smoking should be kept to a minimum. Bogart and Laurie thought it would be uh, thought it would be fun to annoy Warner by smoking as often as possible, and got their co-stars Mary Astor and uh, Sidney Greenstreet to go along with the joke. During the initial filming of the climactic confrontation, all four actors smoked heavily. After seeing the rushes, uh, Warner furiously called Houston to his office and threatened to fire him from the picture if he didn't tell Bogart and Laurie to knock it off. Realizing their <laughs> prank had backfired, Bogart and Laurie agreed to stop smoking on camera. 
However, when the next series of rushes came back, it was obvious that the lack of smoking by the actors was taking away from the sinister mood of the scene. Houston went back to Warner and convinced him that the smoking added the right amount of atmospheric tension to the story, arguing that the characters would indeed smoke cigarettes while waiting nervously for the Maltese Falcon to arrive. Um... (laughs) When Warner Brothers saw how successful the film was, it decided to produce a sequel. Director John Huston had written a script for the sequel to be t- to be titled Three Strangers. The film was supposed to contain many of the primary characters from this film, specifically Sp- Sam Spade. Before the film reached production, however, Dashiell Hammett informed Warner Brothers that he owned the rights to the characters, and even though the studio had purchased the rights to the novel... It did not own the rights to the characters. Three Strangers was eventually filmed with different characters. Peter Lorre and Sidney Greenstreet appeared in both The Maltese Falcon and Three Strangers. Uh, Mary Astor was having an affair with John Huston during the making of this film. Well, that explains a lot. (laughs) There you go. George Raft was originally cast as Sam Spade. He allegedly turned it down because it was not an important picture taking advantage of a clause in his contract that said he did not have to work on remakes. However, according to author John John McCartney, uh, author of the films of John Huston, in an Icons Radio interview, the real reason Raph bowed out was because this was the directorial debut of John Huston, who had been a successful screenwriter. Uh, Raph didn't want to put his career in the hands of of a first-time director. And the opening scroll about the history of the Maltese Falcon is entirely made up. Surprise, surprise. Uh, The opening scroll says, In 1539, the Knights Templar of Malta paid tribute to Charles V of Spain by sending him a golden falcon encrusted from beak to claw with the rarest jewels. But pirates seized the galley, carrying this priceless token, and the fate of the Maltese Falcon remains a mystery to this day. Uh... The scene where Spade is drugged by Gutman was a seven-minute scene filmed in one take, and it took days to get it right. Oh. And and it was it was exceptional. And I did not even realize it was one take until I read this and I went back and watched it. That was a pretty good uh, shot to just be one continuous cake uh, cake take <laughs> <laughs> cut. Yeah, <laughs> to be one continuous take. Um, okay, so I am going to, I don't, I don't ever give a movie five stars. I I did give, will you be my neighbor five stars, but you know, that was for sentimental reasons. I give this movie 4.75 stars. (laughs) (laughs) John, what do you think? Uh, out of five, I would give it, I mean, uh, I'd give it a three. I, okay. Yeah, I, I think, uh, like, I listen, to, <laughs> I listen to you guys review stuff, and I think your scale is different than mine. So so for me, three stars is, is okay. It's not, it's it's it's, it's pretty good. It is, it is worth seeing. You will not have wasted your time. Um, and there's a lot of great things about it, but it doesn't, there's a lot of stuff that I don't like about it, too. If That's I say the, something is three stars, I usually mean that I liked it, but I don't necessarily say that you need to see it. <laughs> you know, uh, if I get up to three and a half, four stars, then I'm recommending the movie. So, I, I would. How, 
how many stars are we going with here? I go to out five. Of, out of five. I'm going to give it, that, I'm hmm. giving it three. All right. Chris? Uh, if we're going on a five scale, two and a half. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and if we're going on a five scale, then I have to give Weathering Heights three and a quarter. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what scale were you using before? Four stars, you know, like everybody else on the universe or in the universe. Not everybody you know, else. Cosmic yeah. Potato uses five stars. <laughs> um, actually. Uh-huh. So does World War G, actually. <laughs> well, I'm outnumbered. Uh, five stars it is. It just depends on your website. Are you talking about <laughs> restaurants? Are you talking about hotels? Four stars, five stars. All right, so now I know how to rate double indemnity. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Troy. Um, out of five um, uh, Falcons, I'm I'm giving it three. I really liked it. Okay. We'll return after these messages. Hey, you listener. Do I have everybody's attention now? Do you like professional wrestling? What? If so, you'll love Review Mania, where Rob and Zach break down. Every WrestleMania, you'll hear about great epic matches by the likes of Hulk Hogan. And what's it gonna do when Hulkamania and the largest arms in the world run wild on you? Macho Man Randy Savage. Oh yeah! Ric Flair. Just stealing! Woo! Wheeling dealing! Limousine like Jet Flag! Son of a gun! Bret Hart. The best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be! Shawn Michaels. Bret Hart! You are a zero, my hero. John Cena. The champ is Cena! Brock Lesnar. Suplex City, bitch. And so many more that I don't have time to even name. Check out Review Mania right here on CosmicPotato.com or on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spreaker. It's a happening. Right here on CosmicPotato.com. Hey everybody, I'm Troy. And I'm AJ. And we are the hosts of the World War G podcast, along with Colton, but he's not here right now. Yes, so pay no attention. Uh, And we're a podcast about everything geek. We talk about uh, movies, television, video games, comic books. Uh, We got movie commentaries, the occasional taste tests, like these lovely pina colada Oreos. Just don't try the Coke ones. No. Dang. What do we say after that? (laughs) Dang it. Um, Oh, okay. I'm I'm, 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 Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you can find us right here at CosmicPotato.com or at WorldWarG.Podbean.com. Or wherever else you get your podcasting fix. And as always, stay geeky, my friends. I killed Dietrichson. Me, Walter Neff, insurance agent, 35 years old, unmarried, no visible scars. Until a while ago, that is. Yeah, I killed him. I killed him for money and for a woman. It all began last May. I was thinking about that dame upstairs and the way she had looked at me. And I wanted to see her again, close. Without that silly staircase between us. How could I have known that murder can sometimes smell like honeysuckle? I can't stand it anymore. What if they do hang me? They're not going to hang you, baby. It's better than going on this way. They're not going to hang you. Because you're going to do it, and I'm going to help you. Yes, from the moment they met, it was murder. 
Always behind them with his devilish hunches and his brilliant brain was Keyes. The murder's never perfect. Always comes apart sooner or later. And where two people are concerned, it's usually sooner. Could they get away from him and his relentless pursuit? And could they get away with murder? You don't know Keyes. Once he gets his teeth into something, he never lets go. He'll investigate you. He'll have you shattered. He'll watch you every minute from now on. You afraid, baby? Yes, I'm afraid. But not of Keyes. I'm afraid of us. I'd like to move in on her right now, tonight. If it wasn't for Norton and his strike pants ideas about company policy, I'd have the cops after her so quick it'd make a head spin. Now, we know the Dietrichson dame is in it and uh, somebody else. Only I haven't got a single thing to go on, Keyes. He'll show. He's got to show. Sometime, somewhere, they've got to meet. Alrighty. Um, let's move on to Double Indemnity from 1944. Um, starring Fred McMurray, Barbara Stanwyck, and Edward G. Robinson. Uh, directed by Billy Wilder and co-written with Raymond Chandler. Not surprising. This is the IMDb uh, summary. In 1938, Walter Neff, an experienced salesman of the Pacific All Risk Insurance Company, meets the seductive wife of one of his clients, Phyllis Dietrichson, and they have an affair. Phyllis proposes to kill her husband to receive the proceeds of an accident insurance policy, and Walter devises a scheme to receive twice the amount based on a double indemnity clause. When Mr. Dietrichson is found dead on a train track, the police accept the determination of accidental death. However, the insurance analyst and Walter's best friend, Barton Keyes, does not buy the story and suspects that Phyllis has murdered her husband with the help of another man. Um, so, let's go around the table real quick and, and get an idea of what everybody thought of this one. Uh, Chris, I'll start with you this time. I absolutely love, love, love this movie. I saw it for the first time probably four or five years ago. I just watched it on a whim on Turner, and it blew me away. I watch it whenever it's on Turner now, so I've probably seen it about three times. I didn't I didn't rewatch it for the show because I didn't have time, but I was glad that there was one that I'd seen that I could speak about and just um, – yeah, this one to me of the three that we've seen is by far the best. Okay. All right, Troy. Uh, yeah, you know I'm I'm right there with you. I I really like this one as well. Um, you know, I mean the the plot is pretty straightforward. Um, you know, it, much like the last one, Maltese Falcon. You know, there's a lot of lot of fast talking, um, and yeah, I. I the acting was great. Um, yeah, I, I thought this one was was also really, really good. Okay. And John? Yeah, what they said. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it, it, yeah, this is easily the best of the three that we watched. This is a really, really good film. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll talk more about it later. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to get more than three stars for me. Yeah, I really, I really like this movie too, and I liked it because it's different. I mean, it is a great example of film noir, but instead of following a detective or a cop or something, the main character is not only is the main character an insurance salesman, but he's also the bad guy. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And 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 usually we're supposed to root for the bad guy. Well, we don't root for Neff. You know, 
and and we know at the beginning i i could tell at the beginning that he had been shot yeah you don't actually see that you know until the end but no you can see there's a there's a bullet hole in his in his coat and he does make a comment that he that uh he's walter neff age whatever and no visible scars Except for one, you know, he looks down at himself or something like that. So, you know he's been shot. So, you know that this movie ends with him losing. And that's probably Hayes Code kind of stuff, too. Because they had a rule that mm-hmm. anybody that killed someone had to either be brought to justice or killed by the end of the movie. That I mean, yeah. that was an actual rule back then. Crime so, could not pay. Yes, right, crime exactly. Does not pay. Exactly. Yeah. So, but I, I really enjoyed this. And... I had only ever seen Fred McMurray in Disney movies and My Three Sons. Yeah, right. <laughs> Until I saw this, I had yeah. never seen him in a leading man role uh, type of situation. There's an aspect of this movie I like. It gives it gives us a story a, a story where the hero is not necessarily the good guy of the story. I mean, basically, Edward G. Robinson's character Keys is the closest that we get to to the good guy. You know. Uh, to a hero or whatever, so he plays an ins- uh, Fred McMurray plays an insurance salesman named Walter Neff. He falls for a woman. Um, she, he tries to sell her insurance, and then she starts asking him questions about, "Can I take out a life insurance policy on my husband without him knowing about it?" Well, that sends all kinds of red flags <laughs> to an insurance guy. Well, why don't you want him to know about it? Oh, you want to kill your you want to kill your husband. But, you know, he's already got a thing for her. He's got a thing for her from the, the moment that he laid eyes on her. You know, he's yeah. he's making comments about her anklet and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> you know? uh, and she says she says something like, when she comes out and she's in a towel and she says, uh, is there anything I can do for you? You know, he, he's, he gets a little smirk on his face like, yeah, there's something you can do for me. <laughs> but, a lot uh, of things you could do for me. Yeah, yeah. He he was great at, at saying things like that without saying things like that, you know. Um, so they, they create a plan to kill her husband and make it look like he fell off a train. Because if he dies in an accident, then the insurance uh, pays double. It's a double indemnity clause. But it, by, by the end he realizes that she has kind of played him the whole time and they end up shooting each other. <laughs> you know? yeah. so, but I really enjoyed the movie. Uh, the same stuff that I liked about about the, the Maltese Falcon, I liked here, except that this, was a, this wasn't really a mystery because there was no mystery. We know who did it because he's the main character. They're the two main characters. They're the ones that did it. Yeah. Um, so Edward G. Robinson, I believe, is known for playing bad guys. I mean, it, wasn't he in a lot of gangster movies, Chris? He yes. was, and that's that's where he met his bones to the point where he became sort of the stereotypical gangster that you used to see on like Bugs Bunny cartoons. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, he yeah. he was when you looked up gangster in the dictionary, you'd see Edward G. Robinson in a bowler with a cigar in his mouth. Right. So right. seeing him play the the ostensibly the good guy in this film was terrific because he does have range, and it was it was fun to see him unraveling the mystery. And Fred McMurray knowing, Neff knowing, that if I have one worry in this cockamamie scheme, it's not that this broad's going to double cross me. It's that it's that Keys is gonna is gonna cotton to this, and you see the Keys. He just doesn't let go. He he just he he can't take no for an answer because he feel I feel it in my belly. I got indigestion. Uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Little guy, little guy <laughs> yeah. Nah, see, nah. <laughs> Yeah, because when he when he comes in and he, and he tells him, I, I think I've got it figured out. And when he tells him, I, I've got it figured out, he explains the entire plot of the movie. 
He, I mean, he knows exactly what happened. Yeah, he just yeah, doesn't. Yeah. He just doesn't know who the other guy was. He doesn't realize that he that is that is him. You know, um, there were some things that jumped out at me, like the fact that Neff goes to a drive-in restaurant and drinks a beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, was there no such thing as DUI back then? Can you just drink a beer in your car? <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, the, the the Hayes Code was in effect here. You had to have uh, a character that committed a murder had to either be killed themselves or they had to uh, go to jail. And at the end of this, we don't know for sure if he died or went to jail. We I know think that he they- went to jail. We know that that's what he said. You know, well, I'm going to call the ambulance, and why are you going to call the ambulance so that I'll be able to walk into the gas chamber of my own free will or whatever, you know, that kind of stuff. But, um, but yeah, but he, but he shot her, and she died instantly because he shot her twice at like point blank range or whatever. But he was bleeding out, and then he makes it to the office to get on that. Um, what do you call that thing? A, like a dictaphone. Dictaphone. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. With those wax cylinders, that's really cool. That's the thing about film noir that I've always thought took place in all these movies, but I didn't, but it didn't happen in the Maltese Falcon is that you've got this dime store novel narration through the right, entire yeah. thing, you know? And I really like that because, um, the, the way he was describing his own thought process through the entire movie, it really helped to move the story along and to, 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 to see why he was doing things it would have been a much longer movie if they didn't have it, you know, cause they would have had to explain things in the scenes instead of just having the dialogue, explain it to you as it, as it goes along. Somebody say something. <laughs> <laughs> I want to give Troy a chance. Well, well, well you, you usually, uh... you usually hand off to somebody else. Yeah. So. What do you think? Troy? <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Um, here are my thoughts. Um, <laughs> I know I, I, you know, I didn't realize it until, you mentioned it, but yeah, the, we are watching the villains of this story. They are the main characters, and I think that was uh, that that's something that was really clever to show. Um, and I really got also got a kick out of the the writing, you know, the dialogue, uh, particularly between uh, Fred McMurray and um, uh, I, I forget the actress's name, Barbara Stanwyck. Yes, yeah. Arbus yeah. Sandwick. Um, you know the how they would use, you know, in in that first scene, you know, are you gonna? Get, she says, you know, the speed limit's forty five. Like, oh, are you gonna give me a ticket? It's like I'm thinking about it, you know. And and they they go off on that little <laughs> weird back and forth. Um, and I I thought that was really clever. Um, and when you mentioned, you know. Edward G. Robinson, you know, it was it was it was fun to see him, like you said, playing the good guy and and starting to figure things out and and you know a lot of people in this movie, you know, they play against type, um, and it was just you know it, it was it was really entertaining and I actually finished it as we were. Uh, actually talking about Wuthering Heights, I was actually sitting here finishing the movie. Um, <laughs> and it was just, I, I, I liked the little, uh, the, the, the twist at the end that, you know, it was actually the other two that are actually playing him. And it was just, 
it it was it was a good um just a solid solid film and definitely definitely earns a spot here if any of these movies does earns a spot on this on the list of one of the best movies of all time absolutely what do you rate it out of out of five um i don't know what insurance exactly. clauses <laughs> sure yeah insurance claims fake casts yeah right, yeah <laughs> I, I would give it i'm probably at a four okay it was it was really good all right john go ahead um yep what they said <laughs> I, I really i, I mean and especially I watched, like I said, I watched them back to back. So I watched the Maltese Falcon and, you know, maybe an hour later or two hours later, I watched this and it's, you know, it's night and day in terms of convoluted and, and who's doing what. And like, no, this is a simple plot. And, and like you said, the, the, the story's already done at this point. Mm-hmm. And it's the, the, the joy of the tale of seeing this, perfect plan just slowly unravel and he knows (laughs) and he's got to watch it happen and there's nothing he can do about it it's 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 great because you're not you're not rooting for him um you're enjoying it's not even you're not even necessarily rooting against him either it's it's just so fascinating to watch as and and so i actually kind of I didn't live tweet it, but I kind of I took notes as I watched. So uh, he first walks in. He's 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 shot. I, I typed. I'm just gonna read what I typed. I was like, "Dude, is that a bullet hole?" <laughs> <laughs> I think you're too calm about this. <laughs> and then he goes to he goes to the woman's house. Just walked into a stranger's house to feed the fish. You fed their, their fish. Not cool. Uh, <laughs> interesting sales technique hit on the wife uh all right turn the record over let's see the other side that was a great line yeah yeah i like that uh, wow he jumped up the <laughs> he jumped up on the moral high ground pretty fast for a guy who was just trying to mack on this lady yeah this, this one she suggested <laughs> subtly that she might want to kill him right um what in the hell is up with these people falling madly in love after like a 10 minute conversation that's what i said before they know more tricks than a car full of monkeys <laughs> I was like, "Is that a lot? <laughs> how, many, how many tricks? Yes. How many tricks could a car full of monkeys now? How many monkeys fit in the car? Yeah, yeah. What kind of monkey? <laughs> so, so, yeah. So, so he he has this conversation. He, he hits on her, and like the next day, he's like, "Yeah, I'll kill your husband for you. Let's do it. I'm in love with you." And I'm like, oh, I started rolling my eyes. Like, this is ridiculous. What's up with this and the Maltese Falcon? And then in that same conversation, he's like. Okay, but really, it wasn't about her. You know how it is. You, you, you had a, you had a plan, and she was kind of my excuse to try out this plan. That yeah, he's I, been he's been wanting to do something like this for a while. Yeah, he yes. just needed a, needed a a way to get in. Yeah, he's like you know you you investigate stuff. You can't help but think of the perfect crime. I love that line. Almost made the movie for me because without it, it would have just been. It doesn't make any sense that he's doing this for her. Not really. Um, but when you see that he was kind of going to do it anyway, and then 
you get to <laughs> you get to see his perfect crime being solved by the perfect insurance fraud guy. Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, I have the only complaints I could make about this movie would be that some of the dialogue is cheesy, but that's not really a complaint. I, I that's that's kind of part of its charm. Um, and yeah, I was I was enthralled, like the whole the whole movie start to finish. Even though you know, like how did he how did he end up shot? Who shot him? Because mm-hmm. oh, there's lots of options. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> lots of options for who could have shot him. Did he get away? Did it, da, 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 da. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to give it. Uh, I'm going to give it four and a half. Um, thumb lit matches out of five. <laughs> I wish I could. I wish I could do that. <laughs> I used, I used to yeah. think when I was a kid, I used to think I could do that. Um, actually, they made matches that had strikers right on the top. Anybody could do it. They still make them now, but they're hard to get because anybody could do it. So if you just, you know, you rub it against your pants pocket and it, it goes off. So yeah, that's what yeah. He, says, he says he says, uh, yeah, I, I I don't like them because they explode in my pocket. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I mean, he wasn't he wasn't that uber cool. He was uber cool, but not that uber cool. I mean, he's not the Fonz or anything. All right. Uh, Right. I, think, I think lighters were invented before matches. I could be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. Sean, <laughs> uh, I'm sure I'm sure that lighters were available. But okay, Chris, what do you think? I'm right with John. Four and a half stars. Uh, I want to say five because I don't find anything about this movie I don't like. But you got to have something to strive for, right? So four and a half. Four and a half for me is like five, and. John, it's just like what you were saying before. You were enthralled throughout. Whether they were good guys, whether they were bad guys, whether the dialogue is a little bit corny and of its time, whether it's kind of forced to achieve an effect, no matter what, you're engaged in this film from beginning to end. It's not like um, the Bogart one where we saw where, okay, these are really great um, character beats, but I have no freaking clue what's going on in the chase of this Falcon, nor do I really care. In in Double, double Indemnity... You you know what's going on the entire time, and it, it, it completely keeps you occupied the entire time. And, and it's, I'm sorry, I was going to say, and it's and it's almost fully story driven because yeah. you don't really know anything about the characters except what they're doing and how they relate to each other. Like you don't know anything about dudes like himself or like, their personality. It's it's it, yeah, it's kind of the flip. Like, their personalities are almost. Um, you know they're they're cogs in the wheel. I also beautiful machine. I I also really enjoyed that the movie wasted absolutely no time getting into it, um, and and it 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 didn't it didn't miss a beat. You know it it got right into the story. You knew what was going on. Um, you were following this guy from, you know, and and, and it was. It was nice. I think a lot of a lot of films tend to, especially in this time, tend to really take their time, and this one didn't. And I really appreciated that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And you're also talking about. I mean, what was great about McMurray's performance in this is like, you. I guess I, I don't think Barbara Stanwyck is especially attractive, but you can buy that she bewitched him right from the start. And it was kind of the opposite of what you saw in in the uh, 
the Maltese Falcon, where I, I just couldn't buy that leading lady as as giving Sam Spade sort of a you know some kind of charge. Stanwick in this was just all she was like sex bot. She was sex appeal. And McMurray walked in like you know I'm sorry, Sean, you can bleep this out like big swinging dick. Yeah, I'm gonna. F- you know i mean it was right there i mean it was just front and center you know and it it's it was another thing that sort of made me go wow when i watched the movie because you don't expect that from something out of 19 what is it 38 39 30 no well the the movie came out in 1946 oh 46 okay so 44 excuse me 44 yeah but it also, and like you said, Sean, it's 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 my it's my three sons. It's Stephen Douglas up there, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So it's just yeah. So yeah, no, I, I recommend this one highly, highly, highly. Baby, yeah, he he loves color, baby. You'll never get away with it, baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So a couple of a couple of uh, lines from the movie that I that caught my eye were or caught my ear. Uh, do I laugh now or wait till it gets funny? I think you're rotten. I think you're swell so long as I'm not your husband. Get out of here. I bet I, you bet I'll get out of here, baby. I'll get out of here but quick. <laughs> and then he and then uh and then in the first scene where they see each other and he's leaving, he says, "You'll be here too?" "I guess so. I usually am. Same chair, same perfume, same anklet." I wonder if you know I wonder if I know what you mean. I wonder if you wonder. <laughs> um all right, so some behind the scene. Well, okay, so I rate it uh, four point seven. I thought it was, I thought <laughs> okay, it was awesome. So I, I like it. Yeah. So. Um, some <laughs> facts, some behind the scenes facts. The movie was based on a novella written by James Kane, James M. Kane, uh, which was based on a true story known as the Snyder Gray case. A married woman and an insurance salesman killed her husband for the money. The story is also the basis for the film. The postman always rings twice. Uh, the man that Neff was based on uh, had a picture in the front page of a, of the newspaper with him in the electric chair at Sing Sing. Uh, it's considered one of the most famous uh, photographs from a newspaper ever. Behind the scenes, there was a lot of arguing, mainly because of changes that Wilder and Chandler made to Kane's dialogue because they said that it wouldn't play right on the screen. And Wilder and uh, Chandler didn't get along so well together themselves. Chandler was a recovering alcoholic. Wilder says that he basically drove him back to the bottle. Uh, And the scene where Neff and Dietrichson can't get their car started after the murder was added by Billy Wilder after his car wouldn't start at the end of a shooting day. In the first scene where Walter kisses Phyllis, we see a wedding ring on Walter's hand. Fred McMurray was married and the ring was not noticed until post-production. Uh, in the scene where Phyllis is listening at Neff's door as he talks to Keys in the hallway, Keys exits into the hallway and Phyllis hides behind the door. The door opens into the hallway, which is not allowed by building codes, even back then. I noticed it, that when I watched it, too. It reminded me yeah, of Honeymooners. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, because if the door's all opened out, then if there's an emergency, people will be running down the hallway and get smacked with a door all the time. But... Um, <laughs> But it does give Phyllis something to hide behind and increases the tension. So. Edward G. Robinson's initial reluctance to sign on largely stemmed from the fact that he wasn't keen on being demoted to the third lead. Eventually, he realized that he was in a tra- tra- uh, transitional phase in his career, plus the fact that he was getting paid the same as Stanwyck and McMurray 
but he was having to do less work was uh, enticing. <laughs> Due to strict wartime food rationing, policemen were stationed in the store where the scene with McMurray and Stan was filmed to make sure that nobody on the film crew was tempted to take away any of the food. Paramount released publicity still showing four policemen in the store with them. Uh, wow. A different ending was shot with Neff being caught by the police and executed while Keyes looks on in despair. Billy Wilder decided that it would be poignant and fitting for both characters if instead Neff were to die in his office with Keyes at his side as he expressed his regret. But he, we didn't actually see him die. So, um, George Raft keeps coming up in these notes. The part of, George, of Walter Neff <laughs> was originally offered to George Raft. Uh, he insisted that he would only take on the role of his character if it turned out that Neff was an FBI agent the whole time and entrapped uh-huh. Barbara Stanwyck's character. Uh-huh. As this com- this ran completely <laughs> counter to the original novel, he naturally did not get that part. George, so George Raft has some bad judgment, huh? I would say he's kind of a diva. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm getting from this. <laughs> All right, I think that's a good place to stop. Uh, Troy and I will be back together next month to do this again and john and chris you guys are welcome to join us the movies that we will be talking about will be number 98 on the list is that right number 98 that's no it's got to be 88 number 88 on the list which is the great dictator Uh, yes from 1940 i think i've got these numbers wrong anyway i'm Forget the numbers. The movies are The Great Dictator from 1940, Mutiny on the Bounty from 1935, and Stagecoach from 1939. Wow. Yeah, the... John's like, I don't think I'll be on that one. My my dad was was way into westerns, and I'm trying to remember if I've seen Stagecoach or not. It was was. an early Clint Eastwood. It was Clint Eastwood. Yeah, Clint Eastwood was in that movie. Early Clint Eastwood. So... All right, everybody, make sure you leave us a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you get the show. It goes a long way toward uh, getting the show in front of more people, and you can reach us on Facebook and Twitter or by email at mail at cosmicpotato.com. You can send us a voicemail or a text message to area code 205-642-8380, and please go visit our website. You'll find show notes to every episode. You'll also find all the other shows on the network like World War G, Captain Game Show, Review of Mania, the Prime Direction, and you can subscribe to the network feed and you'll get all those shows whenever new episodes come out. So, Chris, thank you so much for being with us today. I really had a great time. I love talking about movies. So, especially if we don't necessarily have to talk about sci fi all the time. That's kind of refreshing. Yeah. Well, that was the original intent. It's just that we're such sci fi nuts that that's what we end up talking about the most. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me, I'll, I'll tie it back in. Did you know that Fred McMurray was the real life model for the Big Red Cheese Captain Marvel? Shazam? I did not know that. So there you go. I just brought it right back home. (laughs) John, as always. Yeah, man. And Troy, it's a pleasure once again. Yeah. Let let me say this really, really quickly about um, uh, Fred McMurray seeing the, the beautiful woman in a towel for the first time in Double Indemnity. As a young horny missionary serving in Mississippi. <laughs> I, there were several times I would knock on a door and a beautiful girl would open up and she'd be in a bikini or towel or something. 
if they wanted me to bury a body at that time, I probably would have. <laughs> so I get it. Hey, the, 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 it rang true for me. John and I, John and I were, yeah. yeah, John and I were both door to door salesmen, so been there. <laughs> <laughs> that has occurred. Yeah. yeah. Not the body part, but the other <laughs> body part. <laughs> All right. And since, since this is the classic series, I won't make John do it. You might hear John say tag. So I got we will. One if you want. Okay. Well, join us next time on Cosmic Potato, the Super Fan Talk Podcast, when you might hear John say, uh, Don't be like me, kids. Stay in school. <laughs> I mean, I, I finished school. I'm just saying, don't be like me. And also, you should stay in school. <laughs> <laughs> the dog barking at the end was the best. <laughs> yes. Sorry. Yep. Penelope, she had to get her two cents in. So.